You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Karistin Conan, professor of psychiatric epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, April 16th. Hi, everyone. This is Karistin. Um, thanks for taking the time today to um, talk about mental health. Um, so just a, a little background on me. My research for the past about 20 years has focused on studying traumatic events, particularly post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and other mental health problems after traumatic events. Um, and so I'll be talking a bit from that perspective. I'm a clinical psychologist um, and licensed as well as I am epidemiologist at the School of Public Health. So I sort of speak from a clinical and a population perspective. Um, and so some of the things, I just wanted to start with a few comments and then would like to answer questions. Um, one of the things I might be obvious to everyone um, on, who joined this call is that the COVID-19 pandemic has all the hallmarks of a traumatic event. Um, uh, it's unusual in that it's global. Um, and usually we think of um, typical disasters such as Hurricane Katrina, or even the 9-11 terrorist attacks. I lived in New York City at that time. They have a really profound um, local impact, and then, um, but it's unusual to, for a disaster to affect so many places at once. And the COVID-19 pandemic, some of the things about it that are really challenging for mental health are its level of unpredictability, uncontrollability. Um, I'm sure you've all experienced personally how um, the news sort of changes every day. We don't know when things will open. We don't know when our kids' schools will open. We People don't know if they'll have jobs tomorrow, et cetera. And that makes it incredibly stressful. And then on top of that, on top of people worrying about getting sick um, and the disease itself, people are facing job loss and foreclosures, which we know have adverse effects on mental health. Um, people are losing loved ones. And on top of that, what's particularly challenging about this is that Normally in a disaster, one of our biggest, um, the biggest protective factors after a trauma, and especially a large scale trauma like a disaster, um, the biggest protective factor is social support and social connection. And while we most need social connection, we're being told to um, physically distance ourselves um, and stay at home. Um, and so this adds extra challenges to mental health. Um, so I guess I wanted to say it's really normal for people to feeling, be feeling anxious, depressed, have trouble sleeping right now. People may find themselves, you know, drink alcohol, you're drinking more. People talk about you know, how much they're eating, et cetera. That's normal. Um, when I think about it, what I wanna think about is how do we prevent the sort of normal reaction to a very stressful situation from becoming like a really a real mental health problem. So I'm happy to talk about that. Um, another couple of topics I just wanted to hit on is one is disparities. Um, we've heard a lot about how the, um, at least in Boston area, we've heard a lot about how the burden of COVID-19 is falling disproportionately on um, African-American and minority communities. Um, and we would expect that also some of these mental health consequences might fall disproportionately on those communities as they suffer the burden of the disease, but also suffer the burden of job loss and the economic consequences disproportionately. And um, then a, a last piece that I'll mention and then happy to answer questions is, we've also seen a transformation in mental health care incredibly rapidly related to the pandemic. So previously, um, most insurance companies, it was actually very challenging to get them to cover telehealth, either phone health, health phone, phone therapy or video therapy. And within really weeks, 
um, mental health services have converted to telehealth. And I think that is um, something that will have an impact on mental health services for the time to come. Because once um, that's happened and people have converted to telehealth, people can see their therapist on their video or their phone or, and they can get reimbursed for that, that will, um, that it's gonna be hard to go back, go back to the office. This is made for some people, it has made mental health care uh, more accessible. Um, so with that, I will um, stop talking and answer questions. Thank you, Dr. Conan. All right, it looks like we have a couple of questions already. First question. Hi, Professor Conan. Um, has there been, been any um, statistical evidence, you know, it, it, the idea that, that this would have a significant mental health impact on people is, uh, is clear and, and makes a lot of sense, but do we see rising numbers of uh, suicides or uh, depression and, you know, do we have any, uh, uh, any statistics about the mental health impact that might parallel what we're seeing on the physical uh, health side? Um, so yes, thank you for that question. So we do have some initial, already some initial data on that. So in the U.S., um, the Kaiser, um, it was a Kaiser Family Survey did, in their survey, they asked people if this was affecting their mental health and how severely. And I think it was something like 19% said that it was having a significant, uh, very significant impact on their mental health. So we have that, that sort of very, very um, rapid data they've been able to get out. We also have data from um, the um, uh, China uh, where they have done surveys, so empirical surveys of mental health among healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers, general population. And those have come out in the Lancet in the last couple of months and they find high, high rates of depression and anxiety, I think close to 40%. Um, and then um, we also know the third piece of evidence is from prior disasters and epidemics. So there's a literature on epidemics themselves, on Ebola and SARS. And for example, under, after, in SARS, they found an increased suicide rate in Hong Kong among the elderly, partly attributed to social isolation. And after the Ebola ep epidemic, um, even a year later in the population there, they found elevated rates of, of anxiety and depression. So I think we have these different pieces of evidence um, that we can pull from to say that we were, we're likely, that we're seeing some emergence of that locally, um, I mean, in the US or Boston, but that we're likely to see it um, globally as well. And then I guess a final thing I'll say, my own um, anecdotal evidence is that we have these mental health forums at Harvard on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. And um, they started off as just a little phone call among people. And we've had, our one on bereavement had over 700 people. And I've had those same reports from people around the country doing similar things that people are um, kind of really reaching out for information about mental health, which suggests to me that this is something that's important to people. Is there one particular impact that you are most concerned about, whether it's depression or suicide? Or that's a good question. Um, well, these 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 mental health consequences don't occur in isolation, so I think that um, it's hard to say there'd be one. I think I would be um, most concerned about sort of the range of depression and anxiety, given the scope of the consequences, including the financial consequences, when we know that job loss and foreclosure, et cetera, are associated with increased rates of depression and anxiety. 
Um, and then also, um, we know that depression occurs after bereavement. So um, I think that, you know, around that kind of scope would be the things I'm most worried about. Thank you. Okay, next question. Hello, um, Professor Kenan. Um, uh, thank you for this interview. I'd like to ask you about the an emerging issue, which is the stigma of COVID. Uh, how are we going to? How do we uh, react to that? The, the people who have been diagnosed with COVID, and also the rest of the society towards the, these uh, uh, people who have been diagnosed as positive. There is an emerging. Um, stigma around and uh, what 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 are the strategies of dealing with it that's an excellent question um and stigma we know stigma is toxic to mental health I and mean, it's toxic to health broadly so um you mentioned stigma of people who've had covid and perhaps have been quarantined and then coming out and then also yes, exactly. seeing increased stigma um in the u.s against asian americans um and um other groups that are being that you know, people um, blame for infection. Um, so I think there's a number of things we can do to battle the stigma. One is it, it, we need leadership at the national and local level um, that provides good information and that um, does not increase stigma. So when leaders blame specific groups, then that that adds to the risk of stigma but when they provide good information about um, and we really get good information out there that sort of helps that fights against the stigma um, the second thing is that um, really fighting stigma is everyone's responsibility so if any of us any of us on this call but in our communities are in a situation where we see someone being um, wrongly stigmatized then we are all, um, we all need to be allies and we all need to stand up. It's similar to, I don't know if you have kids, my son's 13, but they do anti-bullying prevention in school and they talk a lot about stigma and things in school. And one of the basic things they teach kids is that if you see someone being bullied, it's everyone's responsibility to stand up for that person. And I think that's true, that fighting stigma is a community response. Um, and then the third thing is that this is where I do believe science will help us as we have treatments, which um, hopefully you know, these interventions are coming in the next few months, we'll see. Um, that will also help when, when, when there's something we can do about it, that'll fight the, the, the stigma that's more specific, I think, to people emerging from COVID. And then finally, I think that really good information about um, you know, the, the, the ways this actually is spread, the way it's not how people can protect themselves by wearing masks can help. Um, if people can do something to protect themselves, they'll feel less likely to lash out and blame um, people who, um, who are suffering. So I hope that's, that's helpful, but it is a big concern. Certainly. Thank you very, very much. Uh, if anybody has a question, go ahead. I wonder if you could address specifically loneliness since we're, um, we're all in, you know, we talk about physical distancing these days. Yeah, sure. Um, so loneliness is a big concern, particularly for groups of people who are already isolated, such as, you know, older adults tend to be more isolated, um, people with significant mental health problems already before this happened. And we know that loneliness is also really toxic to health, um, not, not just mental health, but physical health. 
So, um, and now the, the typical things, right, we would tell people to do um, are we're unable to do, go visit people. Um, I'm thinking about people who've lost loved ones and are unable to um, get together for services or able to drop by people's houses. So what can, so I, so it is a big issue. And I think um, one, what I've been impressed with is how people have been coming up with creative solutions to address loneliness. So whether that's all the sort of Zoom satyrs we saw, or um, I know there's efforts in Boston people I know are participating in to call elderly people in the community on my own network, my own neighborhood email list, there is, there's a lot of efforts to figure out who might be isolated and alone and things that can be done for them without putting them at risk. So I think that there's a lot of us as individuals and communities can do to address loneliness. And then the other piece is, as you know, if people are feeling lonely, they need, it's, it's now a situation where they need to take, kind of take it upon themselves to reach out and find out what resources are out there and connect with people, which is really hard to do if you're loneliness, particularly if you start getting depressed. Um, that is something we need to do. And we also may need to reconceptualize social connection, like people are reimagining how to do memorial services, for example, having to do them online. What are some other ways we can connect with each other um, that are not, that don't put us at physical risk? So those are some, those are just some comments on loneliness. Do you have any um, possible resources that people, either for loneliness, anxiety, depression, Yes, I, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, if people, I mean, I'll name a, a few right now, but if people, we've actually pulled them together and I can, um, I can send people, I think it'd be easier to do on email, but um, some just sort of top level resources is uh, SAMHSA um, has, if you, do, if you go onto the SAMHSA website, they actually have a helpline for people who are suffering from you know, anxiety, depression, to link them with resources. Um, and also on the CDC website, there is a link, there is a section on mental health and COVID that has resources and will link you back to SAMHSA. So those are some sort of national resources. We and other people have put together a lot of specific resources on stress, parenting, anxiety, social connection, et cetera. So again, I'm happy to, um, anyone who wants to make and send you guys the link. Um, next question. Hi, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I was wondering about children, the effect on children. Uh, this is uh, probably a, the, the most, well, certainly for adults, it's the most traumatic long-term uh, situation we've been through, and it's hard to protect children from a lot of what's going on. What, what do you see long-term, the effect on children, and, and what can parents do to, to minimize that effect? Um, thank you. Yes, and I think about it a lot because I, I mentioned I have a 13-year-old um, son, so and he's home, um, of course, with me. So first, in terms of children, it's important to think about what you might do is depends on the developmental stage of the child and the age of the child, and also their reactions will depend on their age. So and I have a, we actually have a, um, we've, we've done a session in our mental health forums on children, and we have some stuff written, so also happy to send it to you. But for example, I mean, I think a couple of the things is, one is what bothers kids isn't necessarily gonna be the same as what bothers adults. I think parents always know this, but it's good to remind ourselves at this time. And the example I give is, um, you know, I have a million different things going through my head, questions in my head, but my son's 
first concern was um, when, when schools were closed, for example, his first worry was not, am I gonna get sick? It was, is the homework that was supposed to be due Monday gonna be due? And then the, and then the, then the texts between him and his friends were all about um, that and about um, then when school starts. Well, they said the, the, the work is um, optional or you know, that it's not gonna be graded. What does that mean? Are they secretly gonna grade it? So that's sort of a typical 13 year old um, 13 year old perspective. Now he's talked more about being worried what ha what's going to happen if if I get sick or his dad gets sick or he gets sick, what's going to happen. But really, the first things were things that concerned them. And I think that for younger children, it might be that, well, um, I mean, I've, I've heard reports, some kids are happy because they get to be home with their parents. But why am I not seeing my teacher, etc. So I think one thing parents can do is really meet the kids where they're at um, and not assume that the things that worry you are gonna worry the kids. So that's, that's the first thing. And I think another general principle is, and this is really, at least I'm finding it challenging, is keeping routines um, where you can and, and keeping connection where you can. So some of the things people have done, I know some daycare centers or some schools have had videos of teachers reading to kids, et cetera. But as much as you can keep that, it's very challenging. I'm a single mom, like I said, my kid's home and I'm working, so it's challenging. But trying to do that, um, we're doing Sunday dinners with Zoom dinners with my family, which is pretty hit or miss on how that works. Um, and then the third thing is, I would I advise really controlling the media exposure your, for yourselves and your kids. And this is, I'm talking to the news, news people, so <laughs> I don't know how much you guys can preach this. Or your, own families, but um, kids can get overwhelmed with information and depending on their developmental stage, um, they can really, um, things that seem okay to us can be overwhelming to them. And sometimes they take away things from it that we don't realize. So I do that by um, myself is uh, kind of limit when I have the, the radio on on the news. I do, I use a lot of written stuff because then I can read it. Um, and I don't really turn the, um, television news on with my son. Um, now my son's older, so he can get the information himself and I don't have that much control over that. But, um, and then the last thing is, is really listening and I think answering your kids' questions honestly, but kids take a lot of their lead from their parents. And that puts a lot of pressure on parents right now. But if you think about, um, there were early, there were studies done back in the day on, for example, the London Blitz and um, how kids who stayed in London responded. And a lot of what I've noticed with my own son is that a lot of how, if, he, if I am sort of managing and sort of uh, managing my own stress, he feels better. And he really gets stressed when I get stressed. So um, that is just to give, to tell parents that by taking care of yourself and trying to manage your stress and trying to relieve your stress and doing what you can to take care of yourself, you're also actually, you really are taking care of your kids. That's not just a line that we say, but you are, because if you are functioning better, um, your kids, that will be a sign to your kids that, you know, this is a manageable situation. So those are some ideas. Again, we have a lot more detailed information in some of our handouts that I can give you. I hope that answered your question somewhat. Okay. Um, looks like another question. Go ahead. Could you talk a little bit about mental health impacts and the duration of this? Is this the kind of thing that will get worse if we are social distanced for you know four months or six months? 
or is it does it kind of bounce along at a uh, you know a, a similar level um, you know all the time? <laughs> that is a good question. Um, one, we don't, we've never been in a situation like this. So the one thing I'm going to say, I'm going to give the boring academic answer, which is um, we don't know. Um, I would, but based on what I, those of uh, the studies, other studies of epidemics and disasters, what I would expect, uh, what we could expect worse mental health consequences um, based on the consequences of COVID. So what I mean by that are, as the, the social isolation in itself or the physical distancing itself is one thing and that is a stressor, but it's all the, all the other consequences that stem from that. So I am, as a mental health person, I am probably just as concerned about the resulting job losses and effects on the economy. We know that an economic downturn and a persistent recession slash depression will have really significant effects on mental health, anxiety, depression, potentially suicide rates, um, substance use. And so I would say I'm as worried about that as I am about the, um, the social isolation. And I would expect as um, if, if those consequences get worse, that would have more um, long-term mental health effects. Now, the good news is there's a lot we can do to prevent longer-term mental health effects. Actually, things like the stimulus bill and in the um, supports that um, coming through Congress, et cetera, those actually can help. They can support mental health by making sure people have have money, get unemployment, can get food. Those things, reducing those kinds of stressors, will also help uh, improve people's mental health, as well as um, providing good leadership and information to people and direction and giving um, clear guidance will also help people that feel less stressed and support mental health. So I think the answer is we don't know. It could have longer term mental health consequences, but I think there is a lot that we can do as individuals and policymakers to prevent those. Great, thank you. That looks like that's the last one. So uh, Dr. Conan, do you have any final words before I end the call? Um, well, I just wanted to thank everyone for having interest in mental health. I know it's hard to, it's probably hard to think about long-term mental health consequences. We're in the, we're in the middle of um, still tackling the infectious disease part of the pandemic. And then there's the really significant economic consequences. So I appreciate people taking the time to cover this. Um, the one other thing I did want to mention, which we didn't get to is, is my um, colleagues in South Korea have have warned me that another issue over time is really burnout. So as this goes on, Al raised this question of, of as this goes on, there's been a lot of sort of community organizing and people stepping up and in my own community, a lot of volunteering and things. And the challenge is keeping up that momentum over time while if this goes on months and months and then you know, some of my colleagues saying till 2022. And so again, I think that is something we need to consider as how to keep people's momentum going and also to um, keep hope and optimism alive while um, long-term physical and social distancing measures are in effect. This concludes the April 16th press conference.